The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, and 24-7 support. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer code GUARDIAN to get 10% off. Hello, I'm John Plunkett, and on this week's Media Talk, Guardian Editor-in-Chief Alan Rusbridger talks Edward Snowden and the National Security Agency before MPs in the House of Commons. And we ask whether Bob Shannon was right about the lack of female DJs on Radio 2. Plus, we talk urinal cakes, wet wipes, and the problems facing local newspapers. All will be explained honestly. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. And I'm joined this week by Media Talk regular Maggie Brown and by Roy Greenslade, Professor of Journalism at City University. Uh, um, Roy, there was sad news this week. Yeah, uh, Brian Hitchin, uh, age 77 and former editor of the Daily Star and Sunday Express, uh, died uh, when he and his wife, who also died, uh, were hit by a car uh, when crossing the road in Spain uh, near their Spanish house. Uh, Brian uh, was an extraordinary, uh, lovable character with obnoxious right-wing views, but you kind of forgave him that because most of his life was punctuated by laughter. And the other most important aspect was that he loved training young reporters. And many reporters across Fleet Street owe their livelihoods and their careers to Brian Hitchens. So uh, it's, it's very sad uh, indeed. And of course, his son, uh, Alexander, is also a journalist. He works now with the New York Daily News, but worked over here for a long period. You know, a, a lot of people who uh, perhaps didn't share uh, his sort of right-wing opinions won't worry so much about that. They'll put that to one side because the man as a character was very lovable, jovial uh, and kindly. Well, thank you for those thoughts, Roy. First up this week, Guardian Editor-in-Chief Alan Rusbridger appeared before MPs on the Home Affairs Select Committee. He was talking about the paper's stories based on National Security Agency leaks from whistleblower Edward Snowden. Rusbridger, among many other things, said the paper would not be put off by intimidation, but nor are we going to behave recklessly. And in one curious exchange, Committee Chairman Keith Vaz asked Rusbridger if he loved his country. Uh, yes, we are patriots, said Rusbridger, and one of the things he loves about this country is its democracy and its free press. And, of course, the chance to appear before MPs, uh, he didn't add. Uh, Roy, what did you make of this spectacle? Well, it's very strange. When you think about the way in which Parliament has so often said that it believes in a free press, to call in an editor and demand to ask him why he'd acted in the way he had, why he'd taken certain editorial decisions, is strange in itself. And I thought that the spectacle of an editor needing to answer those questions was strange. And by the way, there was a very interesting little exchange at the beginning uh, when it was suggested, we're, thank you for turning up today. We have had the three big agencies, MI5, MI6 and GCHQ, all of their heads ac- accusing The Guardian, really, of a breach of national security or thereabouts. So if you have those kind of accusations and beliefs flying around, um, it seemed to me quite um, a sensible thing for MPs to ask the person who takes editorial responsibility for at least a major part of the story, to come before them. And uh, I thought um, he acquitted himself uh, pretty well. And I think the, the reporting today across the press, as I read it, has been pretty restrained, actually. Um, I, I agree about that. I, I actually have to say I, uh, the Daily Mail sketch writer, Quentin Letts, m- might have been clearly searching for some way of being overly critical. But you could tell from the tone that he 
clearly felt that this was a rather strange situation and was somewhat sympathetic to Rusbridge's position. But Roy, there is still this suggestion, is there, that the Guardian may be invested on, on, on criminal charges? How, how serious is that? Or how? We don't really know that, do we? We, we know there's, that they're looking at it. You never know in these situations with this, the arcane language that one uses about the Metropolitan Police generally is what an investigation amounts to. Sometimes they are looking at things with a view to investigating it, and I think that's true on this occasion too. Clearly, in Michael Ellis's questioning, he believes that um, the Guardian may be guilty of um, a breach of the Prevention of Terrorism Act 2005, but I, I think that that would really be a matter for whether or not the CPS, rather than the police themselves, decided that that was even worth investigating. Well, thanks, Roy. We now move from the House of Commons to the BBC's Broadcasting House, where Radio 2 controller Bob Shannon was talking this week about the lack of women DJs in his station's daytime schedule. Shannon, who was responding to criticism that there aren't enough women on his station, said he was doing his best to hire more female presenters, such as Zoe Ball, Annika Rice, Vanessa Feltz, Claudia Winkleman. The list goes on. But he said the station was so popular it was hard to make more changes. I think the really important thing is for us to recognise the practicality of the situation that we're in. We have a fantastically successful radio station and I'm working really hard to make sure that we augment those big stars in daytime with a whole raft of other stars and there are some other men that I could uh, refer to who've also joined the network so that when the time comes when a change is made we have the best possible selection from whom to choose. That was Bob Shannon there talking on Radio 4's feedback last week. So Maggie, it seems to be that well, there would be more female voices, but it's too popular to make a change. Is that a, is that a valid argument? And when they make changes from, say, Terry Wogan to Chris Evans, they, they choose a man. Well, I have very interesting... It's like I have a sense of deja vu here because a year or two ago, when this argument was really reverberating around Radio 4 and the Today programme, um, I was told that um, a very senior executive actually went to Mark Thompson and said, look, you understand, uh, it's very difficult for us to make changes. It's a matter of contracts, it's agreements, it's established names. How can we get rid of a man in order to put in a woman, where's the fairness in that, before we have a chance to do so in the due course of time. And I think that Shannon's making the same argument. So I would say, following on what's happened with the introduction of, finally, another woman presenter into the Today programme, that there will come a point quite soon, it may be next year, maybe the year after, but the next time a big name is retired or moved around, then I think that they will then have to go for a woman. It's a very unsatisfactory response, but it's a kind of pragmatic this is the way the world is. We can't sack people who are at the top of their game and we can't make space at the moment. But I'm sure that that song is going to change pretty soon. And here's a question, Maggie. Who would you have and where would you put them? Have put Vanessa Feltz in and in drive time in place of Steve Wright? Or who's in the uh, well, see, box seat, do you think? That, that's the problem. I, I actually do think that um, she is a great presenter. And, of course, she's on the very early morning shift, so one hardly ever hears her. I'm a massive fan of Chris Evans, I'm afraid. So, And I love the way he's introduced a more family-friendly feel to radio, too. So I wouldn't want to throw him out. And so you go through the day. I mean, Ken Bruce, for example, is actually a very laconic uh, fan man. In fact, he's going to be doing a voiceover in a big BBC uh, entertainment show in, in January. So there are, there are all these people who actually are, are very loved and it is quite difficult, but it will change. I would say with my City University hat on, just the enormous preponderance of, uh, of young women who are coming into broadcasting. When I look out at the serried ranks of my MA students, they're dominated by females. And so I think uh, that in itself 
will tend to have a change. Although when I walk around the BBC, I'm sure it's the same for you, Maggie, you see loads and loads of women, but they're not on the front rank presenting line. And I think that's the real problem. It's, uh, there is a glass ceiling, and there has been a glass ceiling, and the, the, the BBC do try and bend over backwards to do something about it, they say, but in the end, it's a long road. I think Maggie's got it absolutely right. Because they allowed the situation to occur in the past, you now, to row back the other way, have to indulge in positive discrimination. That brings its own problems. Yeah, Jeremy Vine is a very good example of somebody who's got multi-skills and has got the light touch, but also is a very good current affairs and news journalist who can handle anybody in a live interview. As Jimmy Young actually could do as well. It, it, it is, and, and so when the changeovers come, they, they're actually made for sometimes the best of reasons. What I think has happened, though, we're missing out a key, a key thing, which has actually happened over the past few months. If you remember, uh, Radio 4 in particular was attacked for not having enough women experts. And the BBC has run a whole series of expert women days. I know because I've been to them. And they have been introducing, not the presenter level necessarily, but at the expert interviewee level, many more women from those courses. And that has all happened since January this year. So... That, that's a material change, and it does mean that things can alter, and they can change quite fast. Okay, well, my, my money's on Zoe Ball at drive time, because I didn't get one of your predictions. So anyway, let's see. <laughs> let's not return to that one next year. Sticking with radio, uh, and more on digital radio, and this is the moment of the show where Steve Ackerman yawns and gently uh, presses the off button. The Communications Minister Ed Vasey has indicated that he won't be giving us a digital radio a switchover date when he makes his big industry announcement this month, which is the 16th of December, one for your diary. What there will be, uh, he said, was, uh, was more news on coverage. And we subsequently found out, it's been reported, that we might have a, a second a digital radio multiplex, one of the least sexy and interesting phrases in broadcasting. But what it means is we're going to get more commercial digital-only stations, uh, which may or may not be a good thing for the uh, commercial stations that are already out there and struggling to find an audience. Maggie, uh, good news for digital radio? Well, I just think that the big problem is that the public have really in the majority rejected digital radio and I think if he had stood up or stands up on the 16th and says yes we are, fe- we are phasing out um, analogue radio, uh, there would be a march on Radio 4 of people clutching their dear Roberts radios and saying you know what do we want, we want uh, analogue radio there has been no real consumer drive, it, what, what happened with digital television was that switch over a year ago was easy because it was going with the grain of what everybody was doing and so there wasn't a, a problem when it came, in fact it's made everything look probably far too easy. Digital radio has never had a big content driver. You mentioned the second digital uh, radio multiplex. Well, that's partly to ensure when you're driving around the country, if you do have a digital radio in the car, you don't lose it at some point. So... I think the project is pretty much doomed. And now I'm not a great techie person. I have got digital radio at home, but everything that people say about it is true. It's clunky. It takes a long time to come on. It uses batteries like there's no tomorrow. And thirdly, when I want to, or fourthly, when I want to catch up on something or, or listen, I, I just listen on my computer, my laptop. And, and, it, and the, the reception is just great, and it's very instantaneous. And now there's a 30-day uh, radio iPlayer. So... I don't see that there's much future, really, for digital radio. Right, well, it's been going on a long time, but it seems to be you can't really have a... It's, it's far too early, clearly, to set any kind of switchover date. But also, there's no point having an open-ended switchover process because that's a bit of a nonsense. So, uh. Yeah, and, I, you know, manufacturers are not driving this either. Right now, I think the number of cars being built with digital radios is claimed to be 40%. But in fact, on the road right now, it's as low as 5%. Only 35% and a bit 
of the public have got access to digital radio and it's got to even reach 50, but there'll be, still be pockets. Even when all this is finished and the multiplex is increased, there'll still be pockets, geographical pockets across Britain where you can't get it. And can I just echo what Maggie said about using it? I mean, I've got several digital sets. And first, you have to position them very carefully. Secondly, they can, you know, you get sudden breaks in transmission. And thirdly, to be absolutely honest, the FM quality is better than digital quality most of the time. So why should the public in those circumstances flock to digital radio, which is bloody expensive, by the way, to buy? Okay, well, more, much more on digital radio uh, next week. So uh, not one for Steve Ackerman, but one for everyone else, we hope. Roy and Maggie will be back with us in a moment, but first we're going live to Singapore to join Mr. Paul Robinson, friend of the podcast and also, of course, Chief Executive of the Radio Academy. Paul, how are you? Hi, John. I'm really good, thank you. Really good. A bit, bit hot and a bit uh, wet here, but otherwise excellent. Hot and wet. Yes. Well, it's rainy season. It's monsoon season, so it's, uh, it's raining pretty much persistently. All right. Well, well, I was about to be envious, but I think, you know, it depends on the contents of your minibar, whether I'm envious or not. Not much in there, I must say. And I'm, not anymore. I'm, uh, not anymore, no. <laughs> right, Paul, where you are joining us, you've got some, uh, some Radio Academy Awards, previously known as the Sony Radio Academy Awards, coming back next year, of course. Now, they won't be the Sonys. You're going to get a new sponsor. But also, there are plenty of other changes beside that. Tell us, tell us what you've done. Yeah, well, first thing, I mean, the awards are going to um, seem exactly like they have in the past because the events can be held at the Grosvenor House Hotel. It's going to be a hugely prestigious evening. And in every sense, um, the awards are the same event you've had and enjoyed for all those years. But importantly, what we've done with the team who, who manages the committee is to uh, look again at the categories. And we've actually introduced some new categories and brought some categories back. So um, the three Three categories that were scrapped and have now made a comeback, Best Specialist Music. Um, you can't really compare a DJ who's doing a, a daytime strip show and a specialist show. They're different skills. Um, we've also reintroduced Speech Radio Personality of the Year. Again, this gives a chance to broadcasters who are maybe doing more relaxed or more informal speech radio to really have a shot at demonstrating that they're at the very top of their craft. And then the last one, which is an amazing one that was um, uh, not in but is now back and really needs to be there, and that is Best Interview. There's some new categories. We've always had national radio journalists and radio journalists, but we're now introducing local radio journalists. So this is a chance for uh, journalists who are in local stations um, under 10 million, that's the category, to demonstrate how they've broken a story or done something with a local story that's really special, really innovative. And so the other journalist category becomes National Radio Journalist of the Year. So we think that way we're really giving um, journalists at all levels and in all different markets a chance to, to shine. Paul, Paul um, I'm, I'm all for local journalists, Paul, but what about podcasters? Well, Because um, that was dramatically uh, axed. The podcast category was axed last year, wasn't it? Uh, it's important to recognize people who are getting into the audio business, maybe not via traditional routes, uh, or also doing things with uh, technology and with uh, you know, creative use of technology and creative use of audio that's not maybe uh, just straightforward radio station work. So well, it's very kind of you to mention this, Paul. No, no, I, I, you know how much I love the, uh, uh, the, the Guardian uh, Media Talk podcast. No, there's, so there's two categories. One is called Technical Innovation, which really is um, the old multi-platform award, uh, slightly recast. But Technical Innovation is rewarding someone who's done something amazing with uh, a bit of code or a piece of technology that actually gets radio listened to or enjoyed in a new way. It could be a new way of dist- distribution. It could be uh, a creative enhancement. It could be something online. It could be something on mobile phones. But using technology to get radio to audience in different ways. 
And then the second one is called creative innovation. And that's about rewarding people who are either doing something which enhances the listening experience on a radio station or creating audio perhaps on a podcast or perhaps online, uh, perhaps not broadcast, but one-to-one, which is really special. That award will require, obviously, um, an audio submission. The technical innovation one will not require a submission. It will be a document explaining why uh, your submission is is changing uh, the face of radio. So those new awards, we think, really make this uh, year's uh, Sony Radio Academy Awards more powerful, more relevant, and actually much more forward-looking, much more understanding that the, the radio industry is changing and we're recognising those changes. Paul, it's a long ceremony. Will it mean it's also even longer, or are you taking the axe to some of the others? Um, I don't think length is necessarily the criterion you should judge you know, excellence by, but of course you, know, you don't want to be sitting there at 2 o'clock in the morning. I think actually popular to popular conception, um, we finished way before 11 o'clock in the last few years, and we'll finish way before 11 o'clock again. And would it be screened live on Sky Arts or somewhere else, or is, uh, is there a TV deal in the offing, or that ambition's well, been there in years gone by? There's certainly ambitions for it. I mean, no, there won't be this coming year, but um, I do uh, want to um, put a a broadcast um, platform in place. So I would say uh, look out for 2015. It would certainly be my goal to have something ready for 2015. That was Paul Robinson there. Back in the room now with uh, Roy and Maggie. And next up, it's uh, it's been an interesting week for David Montgomery's local newspaper group, Local World, not least because... uh, one of the sites that it's uh, just shut down or merging with another one of its newspapers is a Bristol-based art site venue, and the uh, staff working on it didn't take its closure lying down and did a bit of a DLT, uh, if I can use that phrase for younger listeners who used to be a DJ. And they uh, posted a story on their website which compared Local World to a, a urinal cake and a, a freshly discarded wet wipe. This follows uh, a leaked uh, vision, uh, a memo that uh, we, we saw from Montgomery, and he talks about journalist shifts being abandoned with content managers responsible for harvesting stories and coming up with a, a live content stream, which didn't get down with the journalists. Uh, Roy, but you said actually Montgomery is, is not quite so bad as all that. Certainly not as bad as a, as a discarded wet wet. I think what needs, one needs to see beyond his use of language and jargon. Sometimes you think that Dave is not a human being. I mean, I know he is. We, we're young subs together and so on. But he acts in such a way, in such a high-handed and arrogant way, um, that it's no wonder that staff never love him. And some of his vision, by the way, is pretty awful. The idea that a single journalist as a harvest, uh, a content harvester, combine harvester, actually. I'm a content harvester, I am. And David Montgomery's got the key. <laughs> yeah. We'll sit there, and that will be this uh, person's job to run a local paper in that fashion is a bad one. But not everything he says is entirely stupid. He is coping, as indeed all of us are coping, with this transition from print to screen. And he is suggesting that journalists need to be multi-skilled. He is suggesting that... shut down venue. I mean, that's what I don't understand. Well, he's a perfect right. Look, I I think all of of these decisions taken by the uh, chief executives of regional companies are down to money. I mean, they're all immensely stretched. Advertising has fled. They're only genuine form of income. So, you know, these harsh decisions sometimes have to be taken. And although I'm uh, been over the years hugely critical of them, I'm also understanding that you can't keep things 
that are uh, not profitable. Unless, of course, you take my view, and that is that we reform the whole structure of uh, regional journalism and decide to go for public subsidy and create a BBC-like uh, central subsidy because or we or think... Or charitable funding. Or charitable funding, other ways of doing it. There's a wonderful new organisation, old organisation, which I just actually come across in Maidenhead, the Bayliss Group, who run the Maidenhead Advertiser. Uh, this is a trust not dissimilar in some ways to the Scott Trust who own the Guardian Observer, but this is a trust that actually gives money back to the people. The people feel part of it. It actually adds circulation as distinct from any other newspaper and is enormously successful. So there are other ways of doing these things other than profit. But the problem for many of these large companies is they're so indebted um, that they've got to actually pay this money back or they are so working to an old model of business that they are cutting and cutting and cutting and not seeing the future. So I think in that sense, David Montgomery was trying to see a future in a different way. The trouble is, I think he, you know, he's overstated his case. And the problem, surely, with local world is that it, it doesn't allow for the Baileys. I mean, you're creating a, a monumental or a kind of edifice that's, that's composed of several regional newspaper groups, which then set the sort of template, if you like, for a vast swathe of the country. Yeah, and I mean, I think they think that that's something about economies of scale and so on. But I think the problem is that it doesn't allow organic growth within a community, doesn't allow uh, local people to get involved in the way that they once did. And I also think that it doesn't give the community a sense that it's their newspaper. And historically, family-owned newspapers did that. That's not to say family-owned newspapers are not in trouble themselves, but you look at the little family companies... Uh, the Kent Messenger Group, owned by the Borman family historically, CN Group up in Cumbria, owned by the Burgess family, some extent the, the Graham family who own the uh, papers in Wolverhampton and Shropshire. They've had their problems too, and they're still going through their problems, but I still think that they will get much more support in the community than, than organisations which are centrally located. I mean, I, I read the Shropshire Star in Midwells, and um, it's a very vibrant paper. Yes. And what is more, a lot of the local towns in, I mean, Midwells is where I'm partly living too, uh, they're starting up their own newsletters, which you can buy when you go into, say, the Whole Food Shop or the local kind of news agent even. So there is a lot of self-help going on. And I, this is why I have actually suffered, probably like you, under a David Montgomery regime. And I'm afraid that my heart is more with the journalists on venue than it is with um, his enterprise. He's never going to be popular, you know, Monty. You know, <laughs> but the, you know the Rommel joke about it, don't you? He, he was t- nicknamed t- Rommel when he was at the yes. News of the World because Monty was on our side. But the bottom line, the bottom line is doing well, isn't it? It's going to make lots of money. Is that right? Uh, well, uh, you know, the truth is uh, that local world makes money. Johnston Press makes money. They're all, all his newspapers are profitable. Trinity Mirror still makes money regionally. It's not as if they're not making money. They're not making money in the proportions they once were. And that's another reason to say that we need to throw that model out because I don't think that the people in the communities they serve are really that worried about the profit margin. They're worried about whether they get a decent journalistic service. And that, for me, is the key to the future. Can we create or recreate, in a sense, this is most importantly, if I go back to my beginnings in local newspapers, can we recreate newspapers that people really want? When I, when I was on my local newspaper in, in Barking when I was 17, people would be queuing outside the newsagents when we were delivering it to actually get their copy hot off the press. That doesn't happen anymore. Well, thanks, Roy. And it's time now, just finally, for Maggie's, uh, Maggie Brown's favourite, the Media Monkey Quiz. Oh, no. (laughs) Come on, Maggie. It's a specially extended edition this week. 100 questions. 
Of course not. Right, who is starring in a new BBC sitcom pilot? Tim Minchin. Maggie, oh, see, I knew you'd like it. T- lovely Tim Minchin. You're Minchin fan, man. Maggie, it appears. I certainly am. Yes. Yeah, he's, a, mean, he's, a, he's terrific. He's so yeah. funny, and Matilda's got a fantastic score, and um, he's going to be playing a, a cocktail pianist. Great so fun of the Daily Mail, I seem to recall. Is there not? Is there a wonderful song he does, I think, about that? And he did Woody Allen Jesus, didn't he, on Jonathan yes, Rossi's show, which, which was never broadcast. And, uh, he, and he appeared in Californication with my daughter, and she said he was wonderful. Right, no bonus points, Roy, sorry. Uh, question number two. Um, ITV turned to Twitter this week after one of its uh, big rating shows fell off the air, but which show? Oh, well, I haven't been watching uh, television because I've been... Well, excuses don't count, Megan, but it was the X Factor. Uh, question number three. Question number one went, went slightly better, didn't it? Right, question number three. Well, when's Sherlock back? Oh, it's back on New Year's Day. New Maggie Year's Brown on fire. Yes, yeah, New Year's Day, Year's Day yes. yeah. Yes, yes, this, is the, this is the one programme I'm waiting for. And uh, finally, I would call it a tiebreaker, but Maggie's two up, so it's... Uh, it's, it's a dead duck. Uh, which programme became uh, the most popular show uh, on the BBC's iPlayer in a 24-hour period? Oh, oh Bake Off. Oh, it's after such great beginnings. Doctor Who, of course, the BBC's Doctor oh, Who 50th no, anniversary. Oh, but I, but I'm, I'm allergic to these blasted anniversary programmes. Yeah. These excuses are coming thick and fast. Yeah. <laughs> You've won. It doesn't matter. Uh, anyway, for the stat, for the stat uh, fans among you, yes, he says, Russell, Russell, Google, Google. Uh, he got 1.3 million requests in 24 hours, beating the previous high, which was, of course... Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll carry on. The Olympics opening ceremony. Uh, so if you add it all up, uh, which you're not really meant to because they're not very comfortable, but it's got the thick end of 15 million viewers now. So uh, troubles all around? Well, what I would say is that the actual broadcast got a 40% share, which means that 60% weren't, weren't watching. I thought it was a completely overhyped event. God, you're a hard taskmaster. I am. I, I'm, I'm fed up with the BBC making huge statements out of what are just television programmes. Roy, did you watch it coming in on a high? No, I, I actually, I've never been a Doctor Who fan right from the beginning, so I've never seen a full episode of Doctor Who well, in well, my I, life. Oh, I was just, I love Doctor Who, but I just object to the way that um, we're sort of almost bullied into making sure that we watch it one way or another. I play it all, um, you know, live. Well, I'm looking forward to Peter Capaldi, if no one else is. And so am I. Good. Well, on that upbeat note, uh, we say thank you very much to Mr. Roy Greenslade and Maggie Brown. Right, I've been blindfolded, bundled into a taxi and driven around town for half an hour. I've got no idea where I am, except that I'm in Rebecca Nicholson's TV lair. Welcome. I never knew it was so far away. Perhaps it's not. Perhaps I've just been driven around the block. We might have just done that to fool you. We're actually in Studio 4 at The Guardian. (laughs) Looks remarkably like it. So, uh, Except with more TV screens. Yeah, I know, hundreds. Yeah, loads of them. So I can keep up with everything that's happening. But why are they all on the same channel? (laughs) CBBs. This is is like, whose line is it anyway from 1986? (laughs) It's classic. But even more entertaining, yes. Uh, Right. um, What have you been watching this week, Rebecca? Well, as always, I've been watching Homeland. This week's slightly more pleasurable experience than usual because it was a good episode. It was Homeland doing Homeland well. Not only that, but Brody was in it and it was still a good episode. And it was still a good episode. Not only that, but Dana was in it and it was still a good episode. (laughs) Only because she was cleaning motel rooms. Only because she wasn't really doing anything. (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Although the way that the show presented it, you would think that there was everything wrong with that. Indeed, yeah. She's a cleaner. What? She's ruined her life. I did have an enormous problem, though, the fact that Brodie went from sort of gibbering drug addicts (laughs) to a finely honed uh, piece of uh, marine buff in, in what, 12 days? Within a montage. Yeah, within a montage. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The whole thing was very funny. And, uh, yeah, the, the boy band 
fellow Marines as well made me laugh a great deal. But that said, it was just a fun episode. And we haven't had one of those for ages. It's been such a slog a this series. Yeah, good to see someone going cold turkey and having <laughs> miserable hallucinations and going completely Well, I thought bonkers. it was going to be a bit more train spotting. They did it for a second and then decided, no, let's get to the montage. I'm talking myself out of liking the episode now. <laughs> yeah. Actually, it was awful. Actually, it was really... No, it was good. Uh, is it going to become another tiresome? Is he or isn't he? Once again. They can't keep doing that, though. We've got Carrie's baby storyline to go with. Yeah, she didn't tell him, did she? No, she didn't tell him. Spoiler alert. <laughs> and and she had a cigarette, which doesn't bode well. I know, I was concerned about that. A soul cigarette. Is that a sort of a plot thing, or is it just careless and encouraging people to smoke while pregnant, which is a bad thing? They might be doing that, who knows? Who knows what these homeland minds are thinking of? When he said you're smoking, she said I'm not. I thought she was going to say it's an e-cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> but they're probably still bad. Move on, I'm Let's told. Move on. <laughs> Next. Um, I also watched Liberty of London. Right. Uh, I was hoping for a... Is that like Toast of London, a spin-off? Yeah, <laughs> it's not. It's more like we saw BBC Two doing Claridge's and then we thought we'd do something equally as nice. Except I didn't really warm to it. I mean, I'm not saying that they definitely saw Claridge's and thought that they should do a similar thing. No, they did uh, fried chicken shop and thought they should do Liberty. They, yeah, not market <laughs> fried chicken shop. But a shop's very different to a hotel. I kept thinking that was the point of comparison because it felt like a similar sort of show. And they followed the staff around Liberty. It's just not that interesting. It's a shop. I mean, it's a nice old shop, but it's still a shop. Very expensive. I've worked in shops. It's not that interesting. It doesn't sustain an hour and more um, to come for me. And it's not the same as a hotel. A hotel is about the people in it. And it's about people living their lives in this space. And... In a shop, you don't really get that as people passing through. And I felt like all of the eccentric characters that they brought in were a bit contrived. And I just didn't really enjoy it. I thought it was a bit dull. But DocuSoaps are back, 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 because BBC One are now going to do Kentucky Fried Chicken. How tiresome is that? And there's lots of shot ones as well. Sky did Greg's, didn't they? Yeah, more than meets the pie. Was it ITV that did East Coast or was that Sky as well? I forget, but I wish I watched it. <laughs> I don't. Is that the railway That's line? That's my regular railway line, <laughs> and I do not want to watch it on telly. <laughs> Every journey is a drama on East Coast. <sighs> but yeah, shops. I, I think I've had enough of shops as a TV subject matter. What we need is more programmes about video games. I'm in favour of this. Charlie Brooker, back on telly on Saturday night on Channel 4. How video games change the world. How video games change the world. I really enjoyed it. I love watching Charlie Brooker on telly. I think he's a great presenter. And this is a subject that interests me. And it's almost always impossible to do well on TV. It never really works. Um, It's endlessly entertaining. He obviously knows his stuff. Lots of kind of retro stuff, which my brother is a big gamer. And he's really into uh, vintage consoles and retro consoles and stuff. It's really big. And there's magazines for it and everything now. It's a big thing. So lots of that stuff. They talked about older games. The only thing I didn't like was that they sort of tried to make it a list format show when it didn't need to be. So there was a countdown. And so you had Space Invaders. It was chronological. So the lower things were the older things. And then obviously the most recent were at the top. But that's sort of a bit unnecessary and didn't really fit. There was no reason that a more recent game was better than Pong, for example, which started it all. But a good show. Very entertaining two hours. They were very violent, weren't they? The, the, the woman that got cut in half by a chainsaw. Flipping that, heck. I actually winced at that and I thought I was... I, I've played a bit of Grand Theft Auto in my time. Someone on Twitter, I, I really... I can't remember who it is, but we should credit them. It was very funny. Said that people always talk about how on Grand Theft Auto you can murder prostitutes. But she said you don't have to murder prostitutes. You can also do yoga and go shoe shopping. And that's true. <laughs> that is true. But maybe not in a video game. Maybe you can. No, in, that's what I'm saying. Oh, that's in right, Grand Theft Auto, you can do all of these things. You can buy new outfits. You can do yoga. You can play golf. It's not all 
stabbings and stuff. I did a lot of Jet Set Willy in my time on the ZX Spectrum. It did sounds you? like I should chat to your brother about that. Yeah, maybe. Good times. Uh, and finally this week. Finally, we should maybe check in on X Factor. Mm. Not everyone is, by the sounds of it. I've lost interest in X Factor this year, rapidly. I hadn't the biggest amount of interest in it at the start, but this year I think particularly. Is this because of the lack of comic contestants? I or is it the judges? I don't or is even it... think it's that. I think the talent's very average this year. There's nobody that's really particularly stunning. It feels like a chore to watch it, really. There's no excitement, and Strictly's trouncing it in the ratings. I wonder. I'm not a Strictly viewer. I feel like it might be too late for me to catch up, but I don't know if you watch it. Is there something about Strictly that... It's capturing people's imaginations more this year. I love Strictly. Do you? Yeah, yeah. But now I have to. Now I can no longer watch it properly because I have to dance with a, with a two year old child <laughs> whenever anyone dances. So I get to watch the <laughs> I get to watch the scores, but I've never quite seen what they're doing. And, and my dancing involves one move, which is just spinning around as fast as you can, <laughs> and, then, and then feeling sick. But uh, Strictly, well, it's a bit like uh, it's a bit. Like I'm, I'm a celebrity in the sense that it doesn't really matter too much who the contestants are. It's the format that's the winner, you know. Whereas the X Factor is the other way around in a sense. And they're not up to much this year, really. Yeah. So yeah, semi-finals next week. Great. <laughs> looking forward to it. <laughs> really looking forward to it. And uh, any pick of the Christmas Christmas TV schedules out this week? Uh, Strictly Christmas special, Doctor Who, Downton on Boxing Day. Yeah, I'm quite looking forward to Death Comes to Pemberley as well. A bit of an Austin fan, so. This is the Pride and Prejudice uh, sequel. The sequel, yeah. With uh, and who's Mark Darcy? Someone quite sexy, isn't it? Oh, I don't know. It's uh, the man from the Americans, uh, Matthew Reese. Will he be wearing one of his wigs? Do you think? From the Americans? He has got plenty to choose from. <laughs> Utterly convincing. I had no idea. No idea at all. And that's coming back, I guess, the Americans. I stuck with the Americans. I decided it was a good thing. I didn't. And I don't have that many regrets about it. But people do say that it, it got better towards the end. So maybe I should have stuck with it, but I didn't. The sequel's with the Russians. Entirely in a foreign language. <laughs> with, uh, anyway, move on. Right, my thank you very much. My, my time at the lair is over. I can tell this. Yeah. Because all the screens have gone blank. The screens have gone blank. The car's waiting. Just a message saying, get out. <laughs> so, Rebecca, for this week, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's it for this week's show. My thanks to all our guests, who were Roy Greenslade, Maggie Bowne, Rebecca Nicholson, and Paul Robinson. You can leave your comments on our blog or tweet me at johnplunkett149. Media Talk, as ever, is produced by the award-winning Mr. Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, drag-and-drop tools, and 24-7 support. Squarespace also offers seamless e-commerce solutions for you or your small business. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content will look brilliant on any device. Start your free trial today, no credit card required. As a Guardian podcast listener, you'll get 10% off your new account by using the offer code GUARDIAN. 